Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I, where, I, where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, more will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Were you ready for an upper sermon after that text? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't give one in the first service, and don't get ready for a second one, okay? But uh, we're really delighted you're here today. Thank you for uh, being here um, on this uh, summer Sunday. Isn't it perfect? Well, one of the people who most shaped my life was my first boss. Uh, Bob was my high school business teacher, but on weekends and evenings and during the summers, he became my boss because he owned the local Dairy Queen in my small Minnesota town. Now, I majored in business and undergraduate uh, college, but no one in my life taught me more about business and running a business than Bob. And to this day, I still will remember words he told me one day that I have cherished all my life. He pulled me aside and he said to me, Tom, you are doing a really, really good job. And coming from Bob, those words, I have to tell you, meant the absolute world to me. My boss believed in me, but at the first time in my life, he gave me that exquisite taste of experiencing the affirmation and the joy of a job well done. Now, the movie La La Land is gaining lots of Oscar buzz, and its director Terrence Fletcher is well-deserving, in my opinion. But there's another movie he uh, also directed, maybe you've seen it, it's called Whiplash. And in this movie, uh, he communicates something that is very fascinating to me. Here are his words. There are no two words in the English language, more harmful than good job. So what do you think he's saying? 
I think he's on to something. I think he understands that as human beings, hearing the words just okay or good job doesn't cut it. There's something deep within each one of us that wants to hear awesome job, good job, great job, well done, right? But will you and I hear those words from the one who counts most? Not merely an earthly boss, but our heavenly Father. This is the question that Jesus presents us with in the text this morning. For God is the one who most wants to give you and me a high five, well done. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 25. Now, as we enter back into Matthew's story, let's be reminded that Jesus is responding to a question, a question his disciples asked him about the end of time. Jesus spends a long time answering this very important question. In fact, it covers all of chapter 24 and chapter 25. So, up to this point in our exploration, in these two chapters, Jesus has emphasized several things. He has emphasized, do not be deceived. Do not be afraid. Don't try to predict the end time, exactly when it's going to happen. Rather, Jesus says, live wisely. Be prepared any day. And the question underlying all these, these two chapters is this question. How do we live wisely in the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming? Last week, if you were here, you noticed that a big part, Jesus says, of being faithful in the uh, time between is to live ordinary life well. Particularly, Jesus focuses on our work. And let's not be surprised about that because the overall uh, theme of Scripture, one of the major themes is that as image bearers of God, as human beings, we were created with work in mind. Whether we are paid for that work or not is not the issue. What is it important for us to realize is we were created to contribute to the world. So it's not surprising that Jesus focuses in on the ordinary Monday life we live. Now, in our text this morning, Jesus continues this strong theme of Scripture and he tells us a story, surprise, surprise, about three first century workers. And it's a story that resonates within the human heart's deep longing for being affirmed for a life well lived and a job well done. Now let's take a closer look, starting in verse 14, Jesus launches the story. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, this story is placed in the first century context of the Middle East, but it profoundly mirrors 21st century reality we all live in. Jesus is simply describing, let's describe him as a boss or an owner or even more specifically, a financial uh, investor or a financial manager. There are three employees, and they're all managing this, these resources entrusted to them. A technical way to say that is they're portfolio managers. All of them are given a great deal of money. That's the point. In fact, when Jesus tells 
this story, his disciples must have gasped. Wow, that's a lot of cash. It's hard to really know exactly how much money we're talking about in 21st century currency. Uh, one way of saying it is somewhere maybe around one talent is about 20 years of wages. So I want you to think with me for a moment. What is your annual salary? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> or your annual income, whatever it is. And let's just say for illustrative purposes, it's $50,000. So you take that if you have math, right? And you kind of multiply times 20. And if my math is right, that's a lot of money. That's a million bucks. And if you had a million dollars of cash to invest, you'd think carefully where you invested it. You probably would want professional advice. You should. So here we have the story. And one manager is given, Jesus says, basically, let's say $1 million. The other is given two, and the other is given five. So this is a lot of money. Now, in our context, perhaps you have an investment plan through your work or retirement plan called a 401k or a 403b or whatever it is. Now, regardless, if you're just getting started in your career or your job life, you should be thinking, we should be thinking about retirement goals. Or maybe you're nearing retirement, you're thinking a lot about that portfolio. You probably would periodically check it online to see how it's doing. You may even meet with your investment advisor probably once a year or more to see how you're doing in this thing. And you know that investments bring them with them uncertainty, risk, and reward, and potential of loss. You're hoping they're going to go up. This was really true in the first century. So this is the context. It's not that much different than our day. And as Jesus' story continues, we are told that two managers, and here's the key, are responsible. They do the responsible thing. They get right to work. Most likely, they create a diversified portfolio like today, right, to manage risks. They set up businesses. They trade goods and services, and they earn a profit. That's the deal. But one manager, bless you, one manager is irresponsible, irresponsible. And he goes and buries the money in the ground. In verse 19, Jesus emphasizes the big analogy of the two chapters, right? The analogy is the owner's delay is much longer than would be expected. But the expectation of the owner remains, even though the time delay is there. And here we see that analogy, right? Jesus is making in the story between his first and second coming, it's going to be a long delay. That long delay means he has high expectations for those who are his followers. They are to live wisely in this time between. And that means managing well all that we have been given, our time, talent, and treasures. Now, as Jesus' story continues in verses 20 through 28, you will notice that two of the three managers are given different amounts of money to begin with, but they equally make a proportional return, and they're both affirmed the same way. They hear the well done, right? Great job. Awesome. I love this return. That's the picture. But then in Jesus' story, of course, there's the irresponsible manager, isn't there? He had buried his owner or boss or whoever client, it's money in the ground. And the manager receives the strongest condemnation imaginable and in a severe rebuke. He basically said, you wicked, lazy worker, you're fired. You're out of here. Now notice, not only is the manager fired, 
and we must not miss this, the financial investment is taken away. But it's not only taken away, it's given to the other manager, the 10, the one who made 10, to invest. And Jesus' economy of grace is not a guarantee of equal outcomes, but it is a guarantee of equal accountability for all. That's his point. Now, Jesus concludes this story in a chilling way. That's why I said this is not exactly an upper feel-good message. Jesus didn't design it that way. Look at me at verses 29 to 30. It's very strong language. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very powerful imagery. What Jesus is saying is the consequences of unwise, irresponsible living are dire indeed. And Jesus wants us to pause in the end of this story and move from the first century to our lives. He wants us to ask the question, what kind of manager am I? What kind of manager are you of all that God has given you? See, stewardship is simply the responsible managing of all we have been given. And it is not insignificant that Jesus' story here highlights the importance of our work in economic and financial stewardship. But it's also important to grasp that Jesus is speaking about all of life stewardship, our talents, our time, our bodies, our influence, our relationships, all of it. But the fact that Jesus emphasizes our work life and vocational stewardship must not be overlooked. It is central on his mind. And this is not incidental if we understand what the Bible teaches. The vast majority of Jesus' parables centered in the workplace and in the economy. The vast majority of them. And again, Jesus spent the majority of his time how? 30 of 33 years, Jesus was a carpenter in a small business. So he understood the importance of this kind of vocational stewardship. And he understands our world. Like Jesus, we spend a lot of time in our workplaces. And from the first book of the Bible to the end, there is a strong thread of the importance of our vocational work. Now, undergirding Jesus' story are three fundamental questions that we often miss. The superstructure, the literary structure of the story demands we ask three, three, these three questions. And these three questions are what we'd ask if we had a job interview, right? We're going in some place to get a job. We'd want to know at least three things. What are they? Who is my boss? That's the matter of authority. What am I called to do? That's the matter of stewardship. And how am I going to be evaluated? That's the matter of accountability. And I want you to notice in this story, all three of these play a role. First of all, who is my boss? Right? If we have vocational clarity, we have to settle this matter. All three of the managers in Jesus' story, even the irresponsible one, had clarity in this regard. Right? All knew who the boss was and all knew who owned it. And the story asks the question, how about us? The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. In other words, bedrock on clarity of our lives is that God owns it all. God owns it all. We arrive into this world with nothing in our hands, and we depart with nothing in our hands. And it's been wisely said that we never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That's exactly right. This is what Jesus is saying. In the time we are simply stewards of it, 
We don't serve at our pleasure. Our life is not about our pleasure. It is the pleasure of the one who owns us, who created us, and will hold us accountable. Think about, you know, recently there's all kinds of presidential drama and hiring people and, right, and firing people. And we know that whether we're a boss or a president, that others serve at our pleasure. And this is the picture here. We serve at God's pleasure, not ours. The Apostle Paul, again, declares the lordship of, our, of Jesus over every domain of reality, including our human work. And he instructs Colossian Christians who have been transformed by the gospel to remember that God is their ultimate boss and to live and work before an audience of one. In Colossians 3, 23 through 24, we read these very important words. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are going to have clarity of our lives and vocational clarity, we have to address the question, who is my ultimate boss? How does that question shape who you are and what you do when you show up for work tomorrow morning? Or if it's a vacation, Tuesday morning. <laughs> Who is my boss? Second question. What am I being asked to do? Notice all three of the managers in Jesus' story, even the irresponsible one, had clarity about this question. They were all to invest in everything they had been given for the owner so that he got a good return. And as apprentice of Jesus, we too are given a clear job description to follow Jesus and to serve Him in all of life. But we are also given a secondary calling, not just a primary job description, a secondary one that ties in our own experiences, background, gifts of where we are to contribute in the world. And this is a picture of what does God have me to do? What is my life about? Where am I called to contribute to the glory of God and to others? Who is my boss? What am I called to do? And notice the third question, how will I be evaluated? This is the matter of accountability. But here is where there is contrast in the story, and here is where the rub is. Here, the third manager misses this. The third manager, the slothful manager, somehow convinces himself or herself, we could say, that they will not be held accountable by the owner. And Jesus declares it's only a matter of time until each of us will be held accountable for everything we have been entrusted with. The Apostle Paul writes this so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's a text we often don't want to look at, but it's a very real text. Paul says, for we must all appear, all, before the judgment seat of Christ. So each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One day, perhaps soon, Jesus is saying, you and I will stand before him. And when we do, we will be asked specifically to give an account for everything we have been given. Our time, our relationships, our talents, our experiences, our treasures, everything. Everything. And it seems to me that there are a few 
more compelling bedrock realities that ought to guide our daily relationships, our daily prayers, our plans, our practices and priorities more than this truth. This is why Jesus is so compelling in this story. Stephen Covey, the wonderful management guru, made this comment that we must begin with the end in mind. And the Apostle Paul raises the bar here. Not only do we begin with the end in mind, we live every day with the end in mind if we're to live wisely between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Now again, Jesus and the Apostle Paul clearly teach all the Scripture that the good news of the gospel is not about we can earn anything because of our work. But the Bible is very clear as well that disciples of Jesus are called to steward everything we have been given. And here is the tension. And Jesus allows us to live in it. The other apostles do as well. See, sometimes it's easy hearing Jesus' story and the third manager to forget something, right? We, we pile on the third manager. Sometimes we ask, what, what about if there was another manager who lost it all? There's all kinds of questions about that. But we often pile on this third manager. But I want to give him some credit. He understood two of the three big issues. Right? He understood who the owner was. He didn't steal it. And secondly, he understood what he was to do with it, that is, invest it. Yes, he hid it in the ground, but he didn't squander it. He didn't steal it or squander it. I think, in my demented imagination, that there is a fourth manager Jesus doesn't list. A manager who gets all three of them wrong. A manager who steals his owner's stuff, squanders it, and doesn't believe he'll be held accountable. And isn't it true when I look at my life and our lives, isn't it true that we're more like the fourth manager even than the third many times? That we believe we own it? That we believe we can do whatever we want with it? And that we won't be held accountable for it? Jesus' chilling words, I can't soft pedal. It's meant to arrest our attention. And underlying any faithfulness in our vocation is for us to address these three questions. Who owns it all? What am I called to do with everything God has given me? And how will I be evaluated for it? Let me ask you, are you answering those questions? How do you answer them? How your life passions, practices, and priorities are lived out every day reflect your and my clarity on these most important questions of life. And if we have clarity on these questions, then we can begin to live a faithful, fruitful life. So let me suggest for your takeaway this morning four work reminders, four work reminders that Jesus teaches in this text. The first one is this. Faithfulness is impossible without fruitfulness. Can we be faithful without being fruitful? Jesus says, no way. They go hand in hand. Jesus says in John 15, By my, this is my Father glorified that you what? You bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So let me ask you, what does Jesus have in mind here? 
What does it mean to bear much fruit as an apprentice of Jesus? When we look at Jesus' teaching here and in the New Testament and the whole teaching of Scripture, there are at least three areas of fruitfulness that emerge. The fruitfulness of intimacy and a relationship with God and others, the fruitfulness of intimacy. But secondly, also the fruitfulness of Christ-like character. This is where we hear words in the New Testament like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and so forth, a being like Jesus. But the third one we often miss, it's the fruitfulness of vocational productivity. Intimacy, Christ-like character, and productivity. When we read all of Scripture, we understand that from the very beginning, we were created with work in mind. In Genesis chapter 1, what is often called the cultural mandate, we understand human job description of how we were created. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. This word fruitful in the Hebrew text brings two ideas of how we fit into the created order. Fruitfulness means procreativity and productivity. Jesus is embedded in that tradition when he speaks this parable. Jesus reinforces all through his teaching of the importance of workplace faithfulness and fruitfulness. Jesus reinforces the importance of our work productivity, not only in this story, but in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He makes the point that we are salt and light to the world, and he tells us that our works, it's just the plural, it's the same word, it's our work. Not just religious works, like prayer and Bible study and tithing, all those things are important, but Jesus is talking about much more here, that our influence in the world is because of what we do. And he says, by your works, other people will see, or by your work, other people will see that there is a God in heaven who will glorify me. In the workplace where we spend so much time is where others see the distinct nature of our lives and look upward to God. The fruitfulness of vocational productivity does not, let me say this clearly, does not always have a monetary value. In other words, it doesn't always bring us money. Nor is it a view of cultural material success. But fruitfulness is faithful diligence to your calling, whatever that is, whether you are paid for it or not, regardless of how much or how little you are paid for it. And the question Jesus would have us ask is, are we growing in our vocational productivity? Are you becoming better at your work than you were last year? Are you more fruitful in the work God's called you to, whether you're paid or not paid? Are you growing in competency? If Jesus were to give you your annual review, I get an annual review from our elder chairman. But if Jesus, and he's close to Jesus, if Jesus gave me my review, what would he say about my work? What would he say about your work? Jesus reminds us that faithfulness is impossible without fruitfulness. That if our fruitfulness of intimacy, Christ-like character, and productivity in life is inadequate, our faithfulness is at risk. That speaks powerfully to us, and we know this because Jesus next goes to the next reminder. And that is that few things are more destructive than slothfulness. In Jesus' story of the three workers, Jesus' chilling response is meant to grab our attention, isn't it? Jesus is saying, in the time between my first and second coming, a most perilous danger faces you and me. And that's slothfulness. Jesus, again, 
teaches in the wake of all of Scripture. Wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Proverbs 6, 6, uses an interesting illustration, right? Go to the ant, guys, he says. Oh, sluggard, consider her ways. Be wise. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who had the greatest passion for the poor and vulnerable and caring for the poor and vulnerable, writes these words in the New Testament. First to the Thessalonian Christians, he says, if anyone is not willing, this means unable, if anyone is unwilling to work, what? Let him not eat. Wow. And writing to Timothy, Pastor Timothy in the church at Ephesus, this is what he says, but if anyone does not provide for his family, that is, work hard within the economic system of which you are part, and if anyone doesn't do that and provide for his family, what does Paul say? He has denied his Christian faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Such strong words against work slothfulness make sense. When we understand how dishonoring laziness is to God and how destructive laziness is to us as individuals, families, and societies, why is sloth so destructive? Why does Jesus focus in the parable on this particular issue? It's because if we understand the teaching of Scripture from creation to consummation, that our work is a primary way we worship God every day. It's a primary way we grow in spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. It's a primary way we incarnate the gospel. It's a primary way we proclaim the gospel and a primary way we love our neighbors, local and global, within the economic system. So what does sloth look like? It's a word we don't use very much. Let's press into that a bit. Sloth, for example, is seen in the teacher with tenure who coasts and stops researching and giving their best. Sloth is seen in the repair industry when someone makes an error and covers it up thinking no one will notice. Sloth is seen in the pastor who cuts corners in, in the text in time of preparation for a sermon. Sloth is the Bible left unopened day after day in our home. Sloth is the gospel left unshared. unshared. Sloth is injustice overlooked. Sloth is inattentiveness to a spouse or child. Sloth is forgiveness never extended to others. And sloth is the Christian disconnected from the local church. Sloth is about what we're unwilling to do where we should be willing to do it. So let me ask you, students, as younger folks, now's the time to build discipline into your life. Are you building a strong work ethic in your life? That matters to God. It matters to the company or whatever organization you serve, and it matters to your colleague next to you that you bring your A-game every day, and it matters to the investors or shareholders if it's a public company. The habits of discipline you now engage in school or early in your work are vital. Those of you who are employed in a job and a different part of your career, are you bringing your A-game every day to your work? Jesus would say that matters. It matters to you, to God, to our society, and to your neighbor, local and global. Right, retirees, you're in a new season. Are you staying engaged? You may not show up for a job tomorrow morning. You may not need to, but God has given you a big job to do. You are called to live a disciplined and fruitful life of faithful stewardship 
until you breathe your last breath? What opportunities are available to you now in this season for intercessory prayer, serving your children, grandchildren, mentoring others, visiting the sick, tutoring those risk kids, volunteering in the community, or serving on a board? Jesus reminds us few things are more destructive than slothfulness. But he also reminds us, notice where he goes in this beautiful parable, the third reminder, notice the intricacy of his development of this parable. Today's work prepares us for future work. What will happen in heaven? What will heaven be like? I don't know exactly. I remember hearing as a kid, it was like singing worship songs on a cloud with a harp. That didn't seem very exciting to me. Jesus gives us, in this teaching about the end of time and the next world in context, He gives us the greatest glimpse of the world to come we have in Scripture, apart from Revelation, the last book. It's not singing songs with a harp on a cloud. It will be working. Yes, without thorns and thistles. (laughs) It won't be as difficult as your job or your boss. You'll have a really good boss in heaven. But it's a picture in like the Garden of Eden. You'll be cultivating the new heavens and new earth. One of my good friends, Steve Garber, says we'll be able to eat all we want to eat. It'll all be nutritious and we won't gain weight. But we'll be working. So here's Jesus' point. Watch the connection. Jesus is saying in the parable, the work you are called to do today prepares you for the work I will have you to do tomorrow. I'm going to give you more later, he says. Your work matters tomorrow more than you can ever imagine. Not only to God, to those around you, to a society that needs flourishing, but to your future work in the new heavens and new earth. Last reminder, and notice where he goes. He says, intimacy with your God is your ultimate joy. Notice Jesus defined eternal life not just as a place we will live forever, but a relationship we will enjoy forever. Amen? And we were created with both accomplishment in mind and intimacy in mind, and they come together brilliantly in this parable. Jesus understood Torah. He understood the Old Testament. He weaves them together. And notice the language of both. Do you see it? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. But don't overlook the fact that Jesus now the crescendo of all is intimacy. He says, now enter into the joy of your master. There is joyous satisfaction and work well done, no question. Our hearts long for that, but our hearts long mostly to be embraced by Jesus we love. Even in a workplace, you know that it's not just the work you do, it's who you do it with. Imagine what one day that will be like. So Jesus says, get to work. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made this intimate relationship with God possible through the shed blood on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So the most important thing this morning in being ready for his second coming is, have you embraced the gospel? Have you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior by faith in his atoning blood on the cross for you and his glorious resurrection? Have you embraced Christ? But the second question is, Are you sharing the gospel? A most compelling stewardship entrusted to each of us in this parable is that in the time between Jesus' first and second coming is 
our stewardship, accountability, and privilege to share the gospel with others. Are we stewarding the gospel well? Or are we hiding in the ground? Are you ready for Christ's return? This is the question Jesus asks us. And Jesus says, live wisely. And to live wisely, Jesus says, connect your Sunday faith with your Monday work. For a faithful life is indeed a fruitful life. Here's the bottom line. One of two things will inevitably occur in your life. You will either die and give an account to Jesus for your life, or Jesus will return and you will give an account to Jesus for your life. What will you hear Jesus say when you meet him? Will you hear, well done, great job, enter into my joy? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words are hopeful but hard. And they remind us not only of your wonderful grace and forgiveness that you've made possible, but the accountability we have as your apprentices to steward all that you've given to us well. So may we do that for your glory, we pray.